So fill to me the parting glass and drink a health whatever befalls. Then gently rise and softly call. Good night and joy be to you all. Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Of all the comrades at Iraq. Hey, welcome to the podcast here for the final installment, Father John and Father Nathan. For this time, yep. For this time being, we will be back together in time. Mm-hmm. But this is the end of the uh, an era right now. That's right. When was the first one we did? I think it's been three years since you first did. Your first topic was discernment of spirits. I remember that. Really? Yeah. It was a good one. Okay. And it was up in Boulder. So okay. it must have been, uh, yep. yeah, and then kind of a little bit, and then we really started doing it the last uh, two years. So here we go. Yeah. The first one I ever did was a uh, quiz show. Quiz show. That uh, was I that, blocked that out from my memory. That was five years ago uh, in, the, yeah. in the basement of the seminary. Um, and then the first one I did with Doman was uh, Katana Aurea and Meet on Fridays. And the first one I did with you. So Bam. Craig, we, uh, we're getting a little sentimental here. That's why we did The Parting Glass, uh, which is, I, I always think of the end of Waking Dead Divine. You've seen that movie, yeah, right? it's great. It's so good. So The Parting Glass has been poured. Here's our Makers 46. Cheers. Chin chin. Chin chin. Chin tani. So we begin today. Uh, uh, we're going to conclude this podcast by explaining a little bit about kind of where we're going. What's the plan? We do have a plan. John and, uh, has a plan. I'm just following the plan. <laughs> I have a plan. Goble will execute the plan, and uh, there will be repercussions if he doesn't. No, uh, we'll get to that at the end, um, but I want to apologize. There's many a people who want the third installment of the Virtues podcast, Love Pride, but that's just going to have to wait. I'm sorry about that, because today, uh, Goble asked me to share my story. Uh. I'm going to share my story. I just want to tell you a little bit about myself. I'm just going to talk about myself for the next 30, 35 minutes. So. When I was on the Camino, you're already sick of hearing that phrase. Please, when I was on the please, Camino pause, my please friend, pause to get your drink available. That's right. But we had many, many hours uh, together uh, walking, you know, six, eight hours today, every day on the trail for two weeks. You talk about a lot of things. And at one point, our good friend Molly Roggin. 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 She uh, she said, what were you like in high school? Which is a very scary question to ask me. Mm-hmm. And um, Becca Metzel showed up, and then uh, Elena Marie Boudreau, who yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. So the four of us were walking, and I talked for like four hours, just oh. kind of like my autobiography. I think we might need to do a little less than that. Well, okay, I'll try and trim it down then a little bit. To so two hours. Three and a half hours, something like that. <laughs> this is a very abbreviated version, but... It was, uh, I couldn't believe they were actually interested. And um, it was like, it was like dictating my autobiography yeah. to a couple of my spiritual daughters uh, on the trail. It was, it was one of the best graces from the trip. I've never had people actually care. And I was going into details and telling stories and talking about people. And we're obviously not going to do that today. We're just going to kind of hit major highlights. Reader's Digest. But I want to thank them uh, for that because it was, a, it was kind of a very beautiful moment. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of fitting to. You know, these life comes in seasons and chapters, and it was nice to kind of reflect back on what has happened, what has God done. 
and uh, because it's been kind of a wild ride, right? If you were going to sum up my uh, my story, it would be a quote from the Grateful Dead: "What a long, strange trip it's been." Yeah, and uh, that's it. So we go back to uh, Indianapolis, Indiana, in August of 1983, where right. I was born, and uh, not a lot of people know that I was born in Indiana. So uh, Hoosier by birth and uh, inheritance. But we were only there for a little bit. We lived there for about uh, two years. My brother and I were born there. And my dad was uh, my dad went to West Point and was in the active duty of the military when I was born. My parents met in Germany. Uh, dad was over there. Mom was teaching for the Department of Defense, so she was teaching on base, uh, teaching American kids. They met in Baumholder, Germany at a softball game. And uh, the rest is history. Here we are. And uh, so 1983, I was born. Uh, and then my brother was born uh, 1985, May of 1985. And then we moved to Dayton, Ohio for a little stint when my dad did some graduate work and then ended up in Chicago. And uh, my first real memories of life were from growing up in the northern suburbs of Chicago, Illinois, a little place called Vernon Hills. Mm-hmm. Vernon Hills is not far from Mundelein. Mm-hmm. Uh, for those of you who know the seminary there in Marytown, I didn't know it existed. So earliest memories, um, none of which were religious whatsoever. They were spent uh, watching Muppet Babies, playing with these things called constructs. I don't know if you knew constructs. They were like, it's like a bigger version of uh, Legos. Oh, like you could build these just monstrous. Yeah. Uh, And I found out the constructs are in a bin in my parents' basement waiting for the next generation. So those are my early days. They're like connects. Yeah. 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 So a lot of constructs. A lot of a lot of Legos, a lot of Rumble lot, Buddies, a lot of Battle Beasts. Mark Gallick, <laughs> who totally backed me up on that. Thank you, Mark, the man. Uh, and then when I was uh, eight, we moved to Denver, Colorado. Uh-huh. My dad left the active duty of the military. We moved to Denver, and uh, so the majority of my life since third grade has been spent uh, in uh, Highlands Ranch, Colorado, which is about fifteen minutes from where we are, south, far, far south end of the metro area of Denver. Colorado, which was Littleton originally, right? Yeah. So I still introduce myself as being from Littleton, as other people like Kyla Dahlquist do, partially because it was Littleton when we moved there, partially because Hound Ranch kind of has a stigma. Oh, I didn't realize that. So they changed the... Yeah, our address was Littleton, Colorado for a couple of years. So. Okay. Anyways, moved to uh, Denver. And, uh, you know, my upbringing, I think, was very similar to a lot of people, um, which was I came from a good family, a loving marriage, um, and a solid moral foundation. But the faith was not really, it, it, it was kind of part of the life, but it didn't really make sense. We kind of went to church, I think pretty consistently, but we didn't, we, we would pray together uh, before meals. We'd pray together at the end of the night. We'd say the same prayer. We'd say the Our Father, the Hail Mary, the Glory Be, and then we'd pray through our whole family. God really? bless mom, dad, John, Stephen, Katie, me, Papa, Nana, Papa, Lady, all my uncles, aunts, and cousins, everyone needs prayers. Amen. Boom. Go to bed. And then Steve and I would play mini sticks and you remember those mini sticks hockey they're like this big we play those after they make us go to bed so that was the extent of my kind of spiritual upbringing hmm. get into middle school start going through that really awkward phase um your body's changing john <laughs> the body was changing uh not very quickly frankly <laughs> it didn't really change until i was like in college um i was like size 12 feet you know five foot nothing in like 90 pounds, I was just nothing, you know, all the way through high school. And then when finally my athletic career be- ended and nothing really mattered, that's when I started to actually kind of grow up. So, but middle school was kind of uh, when things started to kind of get shaky. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then in high school is when things really started to fall apart. What happened was um, I started to kind of rebel against the moral foundations of our family life. Because what, what, what held our family together was this kind of common sense of, you know, this is what it means to be a good person. And this is what it means to be a family. And this is what we do. Um, and it was a military family. And my father, as you know, is a very gentle and patient man. But it's kind of like, you know, you come from a military family, you just, this is what you do. Yeah. You don't really ask questions. Uh, you don't really rock the boat. You just kind of, this is what you do. This is life. This is how it works. Uh, parents were from the same kind of families. They were from the same kind of families. Their parents is what you do. Uh, and at a certain point, I decided this is not what I want to do. And uh, I started playing lacrosse and hockey. The hockey locker room was kind of my formation. That was kind of my my church, I'd yeah. say, growing up, uh, which is a rather toxic environment. Uh, I hate to say it. Um, but uh, you put a bunch of guys in a smelly locker room for a number of years, and they start to figure out uh, things that are beyond them very quickly, if you know what I mean. So uh, high school began this kind of progressive slide into um, – Debauchery might be a strong word, but certainly um, a, a pleasure-driven existence. Yeah. Certainly a selfish life. Um, as I was kind of grappling with the questions of what is happiness, I think that's what it was. And uh, I wouldn't have been able to articulate it, certainly at the time, but that's that's what I was asking. And I was kind of just falling for, culturally, what is the answer, which is that happiness exists in the maximum amount of pleasure. And the understanding of freedom is is in our culture is license right the the untethered capacity to do whatever you want at any moment mm-hmm. and as i pursued that it started to kind of fragment our family and sophomore year um is when kind of alcohol began um and uh that's when it began kind of experimentally and then it became habitual uh and then junior year summer before junior year is really when um, it developed into drug use. And uh, so junior year was probably the darkest uh, time of my life in terms of just real, real collapse, um, moral collapse, moral failure, and just profound, profound, profound existential frustration. And it started to really destroy my family. So my brother was a year younger than me in school. And Steve was Steve just kind of kept it together a little better than I did. My, my younger brother just kind of always had this I don't know. He just always had this sense of like, you don't treat, you know, the weird kids at school bad. You, 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 you try and love people. You don't think about yourself first. He just kind of always had that in a way that I never, I just kind of jettisoned that and said, no, 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 that's not what it's about. It's about riches, honors, pride. It's about pleasure. It's about my friends, my life, my sports, you know, and all the while you can get away with it and pretend like you're a good kid and get good grades and the whole bit. But deep down, you're kind of rotting inside. And that's what was happening junior year. My parents realized uh, at a certain point that this guy is on a trajectory for like real self-destruction. And uh, so they kind of did what I think parents do a lot, which is like, well, we'll kind of focus on kid number two and try and kind of keep him on the straight and narrow. And uh, so they transferred to a different parish and they started going to St. Francis Cabrini, your parish. That's right. And um, met amazing priests, Father Ken Leone, as the pastor, Father Michael Polakovich, um, the priest who would later vest me and be a very close friend. Jim Beckman was the youth minister. 
Um, Kate O'Brien was the assistant. We were in love with Kate later on, but um, just like a, kind of a, a golden age uh, of the mm-hmm. parish. Mm-hmm. Vibrant young youth program, solid confirmation program. And my brother got into it and like really had a profound conversion on his retreat. So this is like the end of my junior year in high school. So Steve comes back and he's Mr. Catholic. And I'm just like, you drank the Kool-Aid on this stupid retreat, you know? And uh, we, we went at it for several months bad. And I, tr- I did everything I could to kind of just break him down and just say, this isn't real. This isn't real. You just, you've, you've been told a lie and uh, you bought it because you're pathetic. Mm. And, um, and I'm the Ubermensch who's just defies all of this stuff and knows better. And uh, so anyways, the story continues. I get in some trouble um, and I owe my parents a lot of money. And so what kind of trouble, John, you want to get into, I got busted drinking and had a lot of traffic tickets. I had six car accidents in the first six months of my driver's license. Okay. Yeah, it was bad. I lost all the points on my license within, whoa, within the first year. Yeah. But little did I know you can still have your license, even if you don't have any points. If you extend that, they, they pull your license. So just to, just so you know. If you what? Go over the points? If you go over the points, you lose your license. You can lose all your points, though, as I did. Oh, well, there you go. There you go. So um, in kind of a last-ditch last, last ditch effort, my parents, uh, in the summer before my senior year in high school, called the youth office, and they said, we have this kind of disaster son. What do we do? And Kelly Veach, who was the previous Deanne Larson's job, she was the yeah. secretary in the youth uh-huh. office. Uh-huh said, well, why don't, you, why don't you get him to come on this Student of the Rockies conference? So this university, Franciscan University, runs this, these conferences. There's going to be a DIA in the third weekend of July. Why don't you sign him up? And they think, well, we got to kind of trick him into it. So the way they got me to go was they said, we will pay off your debt, all debts forgiven, which is about 500 bucks, I think, if you go this weekend. And uh, it worked. It worked. They got me to go. I was dreading it dreading it. Um, I remember smoking weed in the car on the way to the retreat. And my brother was like, do you have a soul? I remember him saying that to me, like, seriously, do you have a soul? And I was like, and I looked at him and I said, this is going to be the worst weekend of my life. I am missing all kinds of things. There's parties going on to spend it with you and a bunch of these freaks at a Catholic conference. (laughs) So I'm just going to smoke weed. I'm going to be stoned all weekend. (laughs) Yeah. Yep. So I showed up and I was stoned the whole first night. This is very, very personal. Um, but I'm then sorry. I, then I got up the next morning and um, I, uh, I, didn't, I didn't pick up the, the pipe again. I didn't smoke again. And I started to actually get more vicious, which was like, I'm going to destroy this small group and I'm going to take down as many people as I can because I'm smarter than these people mm-hmm. and I'm smarter than the Catholic Church. Um, and so we had this small group meeting the Saturday morning of this retreat and it was this sweet, sweet, like kind of just mom who signed up to like lead a small group, poor woman. And I just like went at it, everything, every issue. And it's the same crap, uh, that you hear, we hear all the time. And I just was like, I'm just going to dismantle this thing piece by piece. And she responded in this like unbelievable way. I mean, she threw me back on my feet. I couldn't believe she had answers for everything that I said, and it was profound and it was logical and it was, and I I was just kind of shocked. She just humbled me. Uh, She didn't realize that 
she thought she totally failed and she left that weekend and years later we reconnected and she was in tears realizing really? what happened. It? I forget her name actually. My oh. parents know who she is. She, they moved to Iowa. Um, but, uh, that was a very definitive turning point. And that day I was kind of sh- I was really shook up by the whole thing. Um, to say, is there like rat, is there a rational foundation to faith? Mm-hmm. That was a scary consideration for a 17 year old who had everything to lose because my worldview was based on my lifestyle and not the other way around. So that day continued and I'm stuck with, and Stumo the Rockies conferences are large. They're like several thousand teenagers. So they're kind of everywhere and they're all Catholic and they're all kind of walking around. And I remember at a certain point just kind of being fed up and just saying like, I'm out of here. And I start walking out of the conference and my brother had the keys to the car. So I was like, crap, I can't really get anywhere. So the last thing I'm going to do is go talk to that guy, you know? He's with all his Catholic friends inside. So I go out. This is outside of the what used to be the Holiday Inn. Now it's a different name, but it's out by the airport, conference center. And um, I go outside, and I'm just sitting there. And I'm looking, I remember looking up at the clouds and just kind of thinking about that conversation in the morning. Thinking about my life and starting to kind of, things were starting to kind of move a little bit. And this priest comes out and sits next to me. And I'm like, oh, shit. I do not want to talk to a priest right now. You know, I'm thinking this is not going to be, this is not going to go well. Mm-hmm. He sits next to me and he just listens to me. And I just start to kind of pour out my life. And I start to actually deal with the fact that I'm really profoundly unhappy. And that all this pleasure seeking and these friends and the sports, it's not satisfying. And there's something that's going on here that I, I don't know and I don't have access to and I don't really want but is is witnessing to me. And he just listened, and he listened, and he listened. And we walked back into the uh, conference, and he said, you need to go to confession. You need to go to confession. Get this stuff off your chest. You'll feel better about your life. And I was like, oh, no, I, I do not. I do not want to go to confession. It had been years and years and years, you know. But I went to confession. I went to confession to him, and I walked out, and I've never seen him since. You don't even know what it is. I have no idea. I wouldn't recognize him if he was walking down the street. Whoa. And he has no idea that that was the definitive moment of my life where everything changed. And when I told this story to Archbishop Chaput later on, he always points back to that confession as the definitive moment. Because the encounter with Christ that happened in adoration that followed, he, Chaput, always pointed to that confession and said, that's yeah, that's what it was. That's where it happened. Yeah. So the um, to the priest, it'll be a, one of the joys of heaven will be uh, the reconciliation with him. And uh, I think about him a lot because he could have been a really bad priest. You know, he might not even be a priest anymore. I don't know. Right, exactly. Don't know. He might he might be great, but he might not. He might be just a you know a total train wreck. But in that moment, he was Christ. He was absolutely Christ, and uh, the forgiveness of sins was palpable in that moment. I felt I felt things lift. You know, there's 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 weight in the soul that comes from sin and I felt it lift. And I walked back into the conference and I knelt down and um adoration was beginning and I had no idea how to pray. Um I didn't even really know what I was doing, but I felt really free and I felt really at peace. And um I kneeled down and um the Blessed Sacrament starts to kind of process through the um through the kind of the retreat center. And as it passes, I kind of break down, just break down emotionally. 
And there's a couple things that happened. But one of them was this big monster of a guy next to me put his hand on my shoulder and started praying over me. And years later, we'd realized that was Eric Feltis. Whoa. Our friend, our good friend, Eric Feltis. Those some big hands. Big hands. And big heart. Yep. Eric was in seminary with us, now married uh, with several kids. But Eric was right there. Just mm. of thousands of people, the guy next to me who had the courage to like really just pray with me in that moment mm-hmm. is now a dear friend. Um, and so uh, what happened was, I don't know how to describe it, but the presence of Christ was real. And I, what I felt in the Eucharist was like, this is not just like a, this is not just some kind of show. And this is not some kind of symbol. This is a reality. And I experienced it. I experienced Christ in it, the person. It was a personal experience. But it's hard to explain. And the experience in that moment was marked by, I don't know what you call it. It wasn't a vision, because that sounds too lofty and it makes me sound too too profound. But it was it was seeing something. It was penetrating into reality. So I think when we experience Christ, yeah. he wants us to see. He wants us to see into his life. And what I saw was this procession that was happening, um, which was me kind of moving through a crowd of people. And I recognized all the people, um, but we were moving towards something. We were moving towards God. And it was the the most remarkable moment of my life because it was just so peace-filled and joy-filled. And I, I remember just kind of weeping. And you know me, I'm not exactly a crier. Um, I wish I did more. I wish I cried more. I asked Father Brady one time, teach me how to cry because it's really effective in homilies. And he said, screw you. Um <laughs> But in that moment, I was just a mess. Um, And I saw something there. I saw something. And I experienced something there. And I left that adoration, and I just knew. I said, this is real. This is the truth. And everything has to change now. So that night, I remember talking to um, the few people that I thought were cool at that conference, right? And remember, I'm not exactly converted yet. One of them, which was this girl named Diana Hombo. Diana Miller. Oh, yeah. Um. And uh, talking to her about my life and about the party scene and friends and how is this all going to change. And I was really afraid. I spent most of the night not sleeping, just thinking like, this is real, but there's no way I can change my life. And I got up the next morning, went to Mass. Chapu said Mass at the conference. And I remember receiving the Eucharist and and just having this sense of like, um, I will live from this and that this will strengthen me to change. Mm. I remember that kind of going through my my heart and my head um, after communion. And it happened. I left, and I got a call that afternoon from my old buddies, and they were going out to smoke weed. And I just said, listen, why don't you um, why don't you just come over and take everything? And they did. I had some alcohol and a pipe and, and I don't know, an eighth or something like that. They took it all, and they left. Mm. And uh, I was driving the next day. And um, I realized there was still one pipe hidden in my trunk. Have you heard this story? Mm-mm. And I, uh, and by the way, people are not potheads. Like pipes are real small. They're just, you know, these little guys. You put a little bowl in them. And so yeah, these I are not know, big. I'm just, you know, some people don't know. These some people things. don't know. But I pulled over. It was like, the, it was probably about 10 or 11 o'clock at night. This is after the conversion. And I realized this is the last piece of paraphernalia. And I was like, I'm going to make this a dramatic moment. I'm going to throw it into the green belt. Right. So I get out of my car. And I open the trunk, and I'm digging it out, and all of a sudden I hear, "Woo!" Cops pull up behind me. No. And I remember thinking to myself, God, I am doing this for you. 
I yeah. better not get busted for this, right? Yeah, right. And he said, what are you doing? You can't park here. And I said, I'm looking for something. And then he left. And then I tossed it into the woods and took off. Whoa. It was crazy. So that was the end of that. Was the end of that. Uh, a week after my conversion, my brother signed us up. My brother uh, had kind of already had a conversion, but it was kind of sealed at that retreat, which was uh, July 16th of, um, of 2001. Week afterwards, he signed us up without telling my parents um, that we were going to host these guys called <coughs> seminarians. And I was like, what the hell is a seminarian? I had no idea. And uh, turns out this guy, Tony Frasco, and this guy, Peter Musset, show up at my door a week after. And we literally spent that week all night, every night. I mean, the guys probably never slept. We just talked through the night about the faith, about life, about struggles. It was amazing. Absolutely mm-hmm. amazing. And a friendship began there. And Tony's since left seminary, he's married for many years. I just saw him this last summer. Uh, Peter is Father Peter Musset, who you've heard on this podcast, who was my first pastor. Lanky very, guys. Lanky guys. A very fine priest uh, and a dear friend of ours up in Boulder. Make a contribution to... Uh... I think it was St. Thomas Aquinas, 904 14th <laughs> Street, Boulder, Colorado. <laughs> Okay. So we spent a great time. And by by the time we had come back for my senior year, we were just on fire. I remember going to Barnes & Noble and just like pulling books off the shelf, just like everything I could, which is a really dangerous thing to do. I would not recommend Especially it. Especially at Barnes & Noble. Yeah, exactly. But somehow it kind of, I never got into the crazy stuff, the historical Jesus stuff. And I, I mean, yeah. I felt like the Holy Spirit kind of guided that. Yeah. yeah. You pick up like Rome Sweet Home. And yeah. And a lot of C.S. Lewis. And I was guided by good priests and by um, good youth ministers that year who kind of helped me move through um, what was going on. And uh, that year, my brother and I were sitting around, it was in September, and we were like, okay, all we want to do is live for Christ. What's the most radical thing we can do? We should become priests. So that's when we decided we're going to become priests, which if you know anything about theology, that's a horrible, horrible discernment, right? You don't just become a priest because you think that's the only way to be holy, right? Nah. But that did it. So I applied to seminary and kind of went through the, the motions. And uh, a year later, I was in seminary at a college seminary because I was just finishing high school at a place called the uh, University of St. Thomas in Minnesota, St. Giamiani College Seminary. And uh, began there with about 70 guys. And um, actually, 72 guys was our first year. That was kind of cool, you know, the 72. And uh, some of those guys are now priests and good friends. Father Andrew Yagminas, I'm going to be with, priest of Chicago. Yeah. Ridiculously brilliant human being. My first day in seminary, I walked in, and I thought I was pretty hot stuff, you know, coming from Cabrini. And I walk in, and this guy goes, oh, and he reads the Greek off of the mosaic behind the altar. And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) That's a Haley Kinney impression. She always goes, wait, what? What? I was like, everybody knows Greek? And it was like, no, that guy's a freak and he knows Greek. He's 18. So Andrew Yagman is looking forward to being with you in Rome uh, this coming year. So I uh, went through two years of seminary. My first two years of seminary were really just about learning how to pray. And I was under this amazing priest, my first spiritual director ever, this man named um, Father Don DeGrude, just a fabulous priest. Now he's the vicar for clergy in St. Paul. He was so good to me. And he walked me through kind of the messiness of my conversion. Because anybody, anybody who's been through anything like I have, you realize your life just doesn't change, you know? Mm-hmm. You might be able to get some of the substances out, but the tendencies stay. And so uh, Don DeGrude, just a fabulous spiritual director, great priest. After two years, I came back to Denver and uh, entered into the spirituality year, met these guys like Father Brian Lark and your yes. favorite, 
Father Brady Wagner, Father Greg Peterson, um, Father Mike Rapp, Father Matt Book were already there. All the companions now, um, all the boys we talk about, kind of all showing up in the scene at the same time from very different walks of life, from very different experiences. Had a great year. It was uh, during my spirituality year that I kind of knew and made an election right before the 30-day, actually. I was like, this is it. This is what I'm called to do. Uh, my brother ended up leaving the year before, uh, went to Steubenville, since married. You've heard the whole story. Um, and uh, But I kind of, from that point forward, the first two years, first three years, yeah, to the next seven, I know i got to hustle here. No, Katie. Oh, Katie, yeah. Well, Katie will come sweet, to the story. Sweet Katie. Katie will come to the story later. Um, the first two years down, the next seven years were really spent being like, okay, I know I'm called to be a priest, but how the hell am I going to be a priest? Yeah. And I eventually got to the point where I was like, you know what? I'm never going to fit the mold. I'm never going to be the kind of priest that people think I should be, or maybe even that I want to be. But I remember reading this line from Chesterton. He said, everything that's worth doing is worth doing badly. Mm. And I was like, you know what? Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I can be a bad priest. Papal motto. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but I'll, I'll, I'll work at it and I'll try and be a good priest. And, uh, but I just kind of knew this is going to be really hard because I don't, don't fit the mold. I like bourbon a little too much, a little too crass. As my mother says, you got all my vices and none of your dad's virtues, which is not true. She's amazingly virtuous, but my mother's a sorority girl. My dad's a West Point grad and I'm some kind of blend of the two, mm -hmm. but I feel like a lot more of the sorority girl sometimes. I think so. Yeah. So, <laughs> so the, uh, a year later, uh, friend Nathan Goebel, wait, when did you show up again? You 2000, were two, 2007. Okay. So two years after this the uh, first date at Los Carboncitos, as you know, began uh, a very, very intimate and close friendship. Uh, one that's unlike anything else in my life. But I'm not going to say more because guys don't like to compliment each other. So we, I mean, just so you know, like we did not get along. Uh, we did not get along at the beginning. Everybody told me Father John Nepple's very important. He's like one of the big guys on campus and everything else. And I was like, that's cool. Like, I usually don't get along with those kind of people, so I just keep my distance. Goble used to refer to me as Brad Cravens. Don't say his name. Brad Javens. Sorry. Br Br okay. <laughs> Brad, if you're listening, um, I always looked up to you. I thought you were, like, the coolest guy ever. But you didn't have faith, and I was like, I either want to... I mean, maybe you have faith now. You're a great guy. Dang it. <laughs> Sounds horrible. That's all right. Sorry. Yeah, Sorry, Brad. Brad. My Brad is the one that, that like had really great hair and every, all the girls liked. And okay. I was like, that's John. And uh, his mom does his hair and <laughs> and uh, all the girls like him. That's so. right. So. Anyways, but the, the ice was broken. Do you even remember whose ordination it was? I think it was... Um, gosh. I think it was... What is his name? Ah... 2007. It was 2000. I think it was 2007 or 2008. And it was after that we went for lunch. Yeah. So Mauricio? No, it was before him. The guy that's at St. Anthony of Padua. Mark Kovacic. Yeah. Ah. Kovacic. It was at Kovacic's ordination. And we had planned beforehand uh, go. And it was actually Father Geronimo Gonzalez, who is Father Jason Wunsch's pastor, um, who said, yeah, you should really go to Los Carboncitos. It's a good place. So there we go. that's where we went. And we went there a couple days ago. That's Gobo's right. feeling a little sentimental. That's right. Went back to the place where it all began. So yeah, our friendship began kind of slowly. Um, 
and I don't have a lot of time left, so I got to kind of move this on here. Um, Whatever. The in the end of second thea- philosophy, everything started to kind of break down. You kind of go through this enchanted phase in seminary where everything's great and you're just going to be a saint and priest is going to be awesome and everyone's going to love you. And then everything starts to fall apart and you start to suffer. You start to suffer your own sins. You start to suffer the sins of other people. And the seminary institution leads to that, I think, by providence, but it can be crushing. And I entered into a period of real darkness in my life um, in second philosophy and first theology. Uh, where it was just very, very hard, just just really painful. From that darkness, though, and from that confusion and pain, and really the cross of that time was the most fruitful things I've ever experienced. In that time, the companions of Christ, our brotherhood, came to be. In that time, a guy named Father Ray Goronsky became my spiritual director. In that time, he introduced me to von Balthasar, which, who's been a friend and a and a spiritual mentor, even though I've never met him yeah. uh, for the last decade. Um, and then the podcast eventually developed out of the companions uh, several years later. So the last few years of seminary were a really joyful and beautiful time, but it was marked by real suffering and real confusion and real pain. But when I finally arrived at orders, I kind of knew two things. I knew God was calling me to be a priest and I knew that I couldn't be the good priest that I wanted to be. And it took a long time for me to realize that. And the third realization was that the only way I'm going to do this is if I do this with brothers. If I actually do this with guys who are walking with me uh, and who know me and who I can be completely transparent and vulnerable and who won't be afraid to kind of continue to love me in the midst of my crap. And that's been my experience of the last seven years as a companion. I was ordained on May 21st of 2011, um, which was probably the best day of my life. Um, We had a uh, very small gathering afterwards. Oh, my 275 people. My parents were... Parents were a little... Uh, my, I remember, were you the one who saw my dad, the look on his face when he signed the bar tab? Mm-hmm. My mom... There was an mm-hmm. open bar to a certain point, and then my mom reopened the bar without telling my dad. And uh, yep. the end of the night, I took a shot of tequila with my mother at 2 a.m., yep. and the bartender said, this is on us. I thought I'd be in bed by 10 o'clock, knowing that it was a priest dinner tonight. You guys are awesome. So... Mom and I took a shot of tequila. You drove me home. I got up the next morning, con-celebrated Father Brian's first Mass, and then said my first Mass. At my first Mass, I realized the vision I saw the night of my conversion was of my first Mass. That procession was the procession of the Mass, and I was moving towards God in the tabernacle. And the people that were lined up on the sides were the people who were in the pews. Mm -hmm. And it was a completely overwhelming experience. Um, I just kind of truly unbelievable that he would glimpse that from almost 10 years before. So it was almost 10 years to the day of my conversion that I celebrated my sister's wedding, which is one of the greatest, greatest joys of my life. Katie. Katie, my younger sister, my favorite sister, as you would say. Hot hubby Lynch. Hot hubby Lynch. (laughs) Did I tell you that story? No. So I asked Katie, I was like, hey, I don't have, I don't have Jordan's number. Harumph. Uh, <laughs> by the way, pray for Joe Brown. He, had, the father of Lori Brown, he had surgery and it didn't go terribly well. But he's alive, but okay. uh, uncomfortable. Anyways, um, uh, so I asked Katie. I was like, "Hey, can you send me Jordan's number? I'd like to get in touch with him." She goes, "Sure." So she sends me his contact card. When I open it, the contact is Hot Hubby Lynch. Lynch. Hot <laughs> Hubby Lynch. That's hilarious. So, my friendship with my sister. 
Um, I think as adults, it really began then. Katie's five years younger than me, but it began in that moment of being at her wedding. She looked absolutely gorgeous. It's the most beautiful I've ever seen her. Jordan is a man uh, greater than anything we could have ever asked for. And um, ever since Katie's become a mother, she's just been the most beautiful version of herself. And I told her that she just turned uh, 27. Yep, because I'm 32 in August. Yikes. And I told her that you're just, she's becoming more and more herself as the more she goes into her vocation. So um, I did two years at the University of Colorado, which was totally insane and totally amazing at the same time. The great joys of that time were um, starting an outdoor club called Aquinas Alpine with Becca Messel. And Father Peter gave us the freedom to just go. Like I would just, we'd just go, uh, go climb mountains and we would go to Utah and go canyoneering. And then the the high point of that was our Swiss trip at the end of my two years there. Yeah. That was just a Mount Tabor type thing. Gronsky was there giving conferences. Goebel was there. Father Mike Rapp was there. Euchre partner. Euchre partner destroying Grace Jacobs and Euchre every night. It was uh, it was magical. That was a magical moment of my life. And then it went into uh, being moved to Aurora, Colorado. Aurora is filled with amazing people. But if you've ever been in Switzerland and then you've moved to Aurora, you realize why I went into about a two-week depression. Mm-hmm. Amsterdam. Amsterdam. Yep, listening to the Isaacoff album on repeat. My two years in Aurora taught me um, the beauty of um, poverty. Very poor, very simple people, working people, but man, do they love in a different way. Yeah. And I saw it for two years. These people just loved me kind of in a way that I didn't really deserve. And... Um, and they did it so freely and so easily. And I think a lot of us who grew up in other kind of client, you know, economic situations, it's more conditioned by riches and prestige and ego. And they just didn't have that. I learned a lot about being a priest from uh, my tears in Aurora. And I learned a lot from a guy named Father Felix Medina Al-Gaba, who I'd call Felix Medina Al-Qaeda when I was pissed at him because he's got a little Muslim blood in him. Uh and a very dear dear friend. And I just finished my two years with him, and now I'm taking my new assignment uh, to study ecclesiology at Santa Croce University in Rome, which I leave uh, in a few days for that. Mm-hmm. So that's that. If I was going to say major graces, though, I say uh, brotherhood and being a spiritual father. Yeah. Those are the best things I've experienced as a priest. There are a number of people who listen to this podcast who I, I count as very, very intentionally spiritual children who are prayed prayed for daily by name, uh, and they're the delight of my life. I think that uh, just thinking of them when I'm in Rome, thousands of miles away, just the thoughts of them, the memories of them, thinking of these people, um, they, they just bring delight, and it's a father's delight, and there's no other way to describe it. But the thing that grounds me is the sacramental bond of brothers. And that's Goebel, and that's Rap, and that's Larkin, and that's all the guys that you've met um, and heard about on this podcast. Um, without them, where would I be? I don't know. I don't know. And, uh, and this podcast is a fruit of that, and that's why we think, it's, we, we think it's different. So I think that's that. I tried to keep it short. That went a little long. I think you're still shorter than mine. Good. But yours is more interesting. Well, you're just kind of the Mary Magdalene of, of uh, conversion stories. Yeah, yeah. I still I still preach about it. It freaks people out. But I'm just say I'm still shocked that the Catholic faith is true and that Christ is real. Like I still wake up mornings and I'm like I can't believe it. Yeah, because I was so convinced it wasn't for so long, but it really is. Yeah, 
and it goes deeper and deeper as we get older and we suffer and uh, we learn to love. So, what's Teddy's line again? Ah, uh, the Trinity is real. The incarnation happened, and I've experienced it through the cross and resurrection. That's it. Teddy Hamster, that was his summary of the Catholic faith, a friend of ours who was baptized two years ago. Yeah. He's got it. But Te- all of us experience it. Oh, a year, a year it, ago, sorry. All of us experience it in an, like, kind of an inchoate way, Yeah, where it's like we get tastes of that, you know? Yeah. And uh, here we are. Here we are. What a long, strange, strange trip, trip it's been. been. So, with that being said, we better transition here and explain... What's going to happen? Oh, yeah. What's going to happen to the Shoot, podcast? I forgot about that. Yeah, go. So I'd like to formally offer my blessing to Father Michael O'Loughlin. I'm re- he's reading the papal... Benedictamus Nomino. The papal bull is yeah. being read right now, and he is hereby appointed to the seat of uh, the chair opposite Father Nathan Goebel in Denver, Colorado, for the co-host of Catholic Stuff Podcast. Father Michael is a Byzantine priest. O'Loughlin. Father Michael O'Loughlin is, uh, which we still call him O'Loughlin after like five years of friendship. Otherwise known as Olaf. Which now we're calling Flo-Lo. 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 Yeah, so Flo-Lo is going to be joining uh, the (laughs) the podcast. He's going to be a great addition to the um, kind of craziness and uh, emotional volatility of my good friend Father Nathan here. Yep. Olo is a very, uh, very calm, collected character. And the one problem with him being on the podcast is you're going to realize how uncool we are when you listen to him talk. Yep. So the plan is Father Nathan and Father Michael O'Loughlin will uh, continue beginning in the weeks to come. Yes. Father Mike will be sprinkled in there as he's going to be back in Denver this summer. And then in the fall, in October, Father Mike and I are going to set up shop in Rome and we're going to rotate each week. Mm-hmm. So you have Denver. And then Rome. So you hear from both of us, and then when we're together, we'll podcast. There'll be an inner penetration. The inner penetration of vocation. <laughs> yeah, and we're breathing with both lungs, because right. since he's a Byzantine priest, uh, we have the Eastern and the Western, Rome and Denver, West und West. Yeah. Und yep. So it's all going to work out. I know there's a lot of nervousness what's going to happen to this thing, but I think that it's going to uh, continue and it'll be beautiful. So, I want to say thank you to the listeners uh, for these last five years. I'm going to be taking a break. I'm going to look forward to just being a listener now for the next few months. I'll be back in the fall. But uh, thanks for listening. And I want to apologize for making fun of you for listening many, many times. Thank you. What I meant was I'm shocked that you listen. And I think that's my own baggage. So, I'll leave it at that. Okay. I think we're good. Catholic Stuff Podcast at gmail.com thanks for listening Gobble will see you next week and I'll see you in October Laters Some fill to me the parting glass and drink